Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions. And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio. Here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show in our, I think, 17th year at this point. Uh, Today, we are going to talk about a story of addiction and depression along with recovery and hope. And hope here is the operative word in everything that I do in my interviews. My guest is Dr. Adam B. Hill, and he is a husband, a physician, a native Indiana son, a father of two, and he has gained national and international attention for his lectures and writing about his own successful recovery from depression and alcoholism, along with all of those lessons that he learned along the way. His new book is Long Walk Out of the Woods, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery. And he'll talk about how this problem starts, it manifests, how do you address it, how do you look at the commonplace attitudes regarding this, self-care, treatment, and really all about how medical practitioners can look at this and handle it as well and what their vulnerability is. Welcome, Dr. Adam Hill. A pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, you know, let's just start by looking at how this book came to be. When You know, because when you write a book like this, you're obviously exposing yourself. So what what was the impetus for this? That's right. Uh, You know, about three years ago, I... I'd been in recovery successfully for a handful of years at, at that point in time, but three years ago, I lost a colleague to suicide, and it had been, at the time, the fifth colleague I'd had in working yeah. in medicine that had died by suicide, and now that number, unfortunately, is six. Um, yeah. You know, so at the time, I'd been living as a man with a a complex history of anxiety and depression and substance use recovery and but was living in uh, a really secret life of battling shame and guilt of having these uh, the stigma attached to being somebody in mental health recovery and mm-hmm. you know that at that time I I really just felt empowered I felt this calling to you know to step forward to stand up and share my voice and share my story in the hope that it would reach or help other people that were struggling or suffering in silence and and that really became this greater calling of speaking and lecturing and writing and then eventually uh, what led me to writing this book you know i have to share this it's interesting i'm a baby boomer and i grew up in a family my father was a dentist but i grew up in a family with a mother who was trained as a child that the best thing you can do for yourself as a woman is marry a doctor you marry a doctor and you live happily ever after and you're totally taken care of. Now, I'm going back, what, you know, this was the 1940s, maybe 1930s. There's a reason I'm asking you this, because my mother, who's not alive anymore, might look at this and say, how could that be? I mean, this man was a doctor. You know, look at the opportunity. Why would he have a problem? I'm just kind of giving you that old fashioned view because people would think you're privileged, you're educated. How did this happen to you? So please address that from a medical point of view. Yeah, no, I appreciate this question. And I write early, you know, in the pages of this book that I'm, you know, um, upper middle class Caucasian American male that has had 
a lot of opportunities and have been awarded resources and uh, privileges of being able to not only seek help and treatment, but to work in a professional career. And I acknowledge those and 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 own those as as part of my story. And at the same time, I was raised in a, a small town. I come from humble beginnings, and I um, I wanted to write this story in really human tones to acknowledge some of this pedestal and this fallacy of yes. putting in, individuals up, um, you know, into a different stratosphere of how we view them, because really, stories of addiction and mental health transcend um, so many things culturally across the world. It's not, you know, your intelligence that protects you from this or what's in your bank account or, mm-hmm. um, but it can affect anybody. And and so, you know, I really wrote this in, in human tones because I think so many threads of my story are shared by so many people that struggle and not as a doctor writing it, but as a human being just trying to navigate a world where anxiety was a huge part of my life story and has been, and so was depression. And so I think if we strip some of that, yeah. Yeah, and also you talk about how this is affecting a lot of other medical practitioners. That's right. And, you know, and I think, you know, opening up this conversation in a way to be vulnerable and strip down this pretense or this separation of, uh, you know, um, us versus them or doctor versus patient or bureaucratic business of modern medicine versus, you know, the culture at large is to say, you know, we're all human beings affected by some of the same commonalities of medical conditions. And and so many of this is our, our lived experience that, you know, yeah. to share our vulnerable truth hopefully normalizes the conversation yeah. in a way that will encourage people, um, especially, you know, I see so much stigma, too, and um, amongst ma- men willing to talk about their, their mental health openly, sure. that if we normalize this conversation, then maybe people will be more willing yeah. to reach out for help. Well, that's true. And there's so much depression and suicide, and people then, they're surprised because people aren't talking about it, as you said. Do you think part of the issue around the medical practitioner, the MD, the DM, whatever that, whatever their profession is in medicine, do you think part of it, Adam, is the pressure that you have? You know, there's pressure to perform. There's pressure to be outstanding. You can't make a mistake. You've got to get it right. Do you think that's part of it? I do. I, I think that that contributes. You know, we we exist in a, a Western culture that uh, idealizes medicine. You come to the yes. hospital to, yes. to get well, and there's not a space to openly talk about mortality and this pressure that we've built upon modern mechanizations, procedures, interventions, drugs to cure has put an immense pressure on the individuals delivering, um, you know, healthcare. And, and most people that go into medicine, like myself, go into it wanting to help people, wanting to make a difference and impact in other people's lives. And I think more and more have been stifled and stymied of how business has grown into, you know, just a massive bureaucratic machine of insurance companies and pharmaceuticals. And, and, and it's become harder and harder to simply provide care for, for people and, and to see how these inequities across all of our, you know, population are, are, you know, failed to be delivered to the people who need it. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it, it it's disillusioning a, a lot of times and for people who really truly want to make a difference. 
So how did you move your way out of this? I mean, you suffered despair and disillusionment with the whole culture of medicine. Then you went into depression and alcoholism and an active suicide plan. So you did get into recovery. But how did you tell, you know, give some of the process to our listeners about, you know, because people will say, well, how did you really do it? You know, if you were down in that deep depth, there was something in you, Adam, that said, no, I'm going to work through this. There was some voice, right, even though you were in that depth, that said, no, I'm not going down with this. I'm going to make my, I'm going to make my life work. Talk about that, please. Yeah, I, I think that voice really started off, um, you know, that voice was my wife. And um, I, I write this story in a way to hopefully reflect and convey that you can't do this alone and that I'm not the hero of this story, but it's my wife, my parents, my sister, my close friends. Because um, when I was in the depths of depression and active addiction, I was in such deep denial and just and suffering and pain that I couldn't see my way, you know, forward or yeah. uh, what the next steps would be. And so for me in the very beginning, it was grace and it was listening and reaching out and accepting that help. Um, and I, you know, incredibly blessed to have a family that unconditionally yes. loved me and rallied around right. me as well. Because some people don't, correct? I'm sure you've talked to other people where their spouses have left them or their children have not been so kind. I'm sure you've heard those stories, and that makes it harder. And that's absolutely correct. And, and you know, I don't, I don't pretend that my course of recovery was a smooth one. It's been long and fractured and difficult at times, but also beautiful in the perspectives I've gained. My, you know, my wife and I struggled immensely for the first few years and were in marriage counseling and even in recovery. You didn't know if our relationship would survive. And those things are real and, you know, tangible and, um, and can be difficult even on the path of recovery. I, what do you think? What do you think made it work? Was it that you listened to each other, that you went yeah. for counseling, that you both wanted to make it work? What do you think made it work, Adam? I think all of the above to the insights you've provided is that it was listening, being open to uh, another person's perspective and and respecting that, um, you know, harm was done and amends needed to be yeah. made and that we yeah. needed to, you know, to build upon that and that healing needed to take place. And it took years and I don't, I don't sit here and talk to you and your audience on some soapbox like eight years in that I have it all figured out. I continue to, to navigate as a man living in recovery as well. Do you think, we have a couple minutes before break, do you think there are some things that are triggers for you? So, for example, something might mm. happen and you could easily go back into that, right? You could easily go back into alcoholism or, or, um, or depression, and so do, are you now more aware of those triggers so you can say, oh, I see that coming, but I'm not going to let it bring me down. Talk about uh, that. It's a, no, it's a beautiful point. And, 
and really in years in therapy and in the recovery community have helped to identify my triggers. You know, my probably one of my biggest ones is stress management, anxiety management, is um, right. making sure that I cope with that, um, as well as taking care of my physical health and being really regimented and scheduled with the way I exercise and the way I eat and the way I practice mindfulness and meditation and just being pretty regimented about what I do to take care of my body and my mind are huge parts of my daily recovery. Thank you. My guest is Dr. Adam Hill. He's with us for the whole hour. He's a physician. His his book, his newest book, is Long Walk Out of the Woods, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery. And he, again, uh, is an oncologist, a pediatric oncologist, and a palliative care physician. And we're talking about how he moved from depression and alcoholism and an active suicidal plan to a, a life filled with hope and joy and love with his family and his patients. So stay tuned. There's more with Dr. Adam Hill. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice. And we'll be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. What are the labels that identify us? Who are we, and how do we figure out our place in the world? Do we own our narrative? If you were to create your biography today, what would it say about you? Listen for Dropping In with host Diane Dewey, the author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Diane and her guests will give their version of finding themselves. Find out about your authenticity by dropping in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We all know that today our country is in many ways run by vested interests, which have accumulated large amounts of power for themselves and at our expense. But this can be changed by recognizing the problems and then by adopting libertarian solutions to address them. Tune in to All Rise, the Libertarian Way with Judge Jim Gray. Judge Gray and his guests will discuss the problem areas of today and then present solutions that result in a better world for ourselves and our children. Tune in Fridays at 7 a.m. Pacific, 10 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. are listening to the patricia raskin show if you wish to call into our program today please call 1-866-472-5788 that number again is 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com now back to the patricia raskin show hi everyone and we are back and my guest for the whole hour is dr adam hill 
who is a physician, a husband. Uh, he has had gotten international attention for his lectures, writing about his own successful recovery from depression and alcoholism and the lessons he's learned around along the way. He is currently a pediatric oncologist and palliative care physician. And his book is Long Walk Out of the Woods, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery. Welcome back, Adam. Uh, thank you. Okay, so... Let's look at your work now. As a pediatric oncologist, you're working with children who have cancer, correct? That's right, and um, and mainly now as a pediatric palliative care physician, still working with children with cancer, but also many other different types of diagnosis that um, may be uh, significant or sometimes even life-limiting. Explain what palliative care is for our listeners. Sure. Palliative care has been this rapidly evolving field in medicine over the last uh, several decades of really focusing on quality of life in the midst of sometimes um, life-limiting or life-threatening medical conditions. And so we focus on pain, symptom management, helping families make big medical decisions on the goals of, of, of medical interventions and how we can match family and patient goals. And so we really sort of pride ourselves on being exceptional communicators as well as compassionate and empathic um, individuals helping guide families through that journey. Are some of the palliative care patients in hospice? That is correct. About For us and in, in the patients that we serve, probably 20% of our job is okay. taking care of patients at the end of life, and, and sometimes that's with hospice services, and so that is definitely part of my daily work and our, and our team's work. Okay. So let's look at this. Let's look at working with patients like this. Now, you've been through your own struggle with depression and with substance use. What do you say or how do you help families and the patient um, prevent spiraling down and going into a depression or um, substance abuse? What are, what are the warning signs and how do you help them? Sure. You know, I, I think we, we live in a, a space of, of, of treating patients and pediatric patients, but knowing that it's always about the family unit and that everyone is affected. And so, you know, for me, I, I never make uh, anything about my story in the therapeutic relationship and, and you know, want it to be focused on the needs of the patient and the family. That being said, I, you know, having my story out there pretty widely known now, I have individuals all the time that um, bring it up or ask me or see me as um, somebody that may understand what it's like to go through a mental health condition or a substance use uh, condition. And so I feel like for me, living openly has created these windows of opportunities of vulnerability that we can share in this really human connection and moment that people know that, um, you know, that I, I may very well be compassionate understanding to what they're going through, and it opens up opportunities to, I think, share honestly. And so for me in my career, it's been, it's been a gift, um, a gift to carve out spaces where um, I can help people when, you know, previously I may not have had that opportunity when I was living this secretive, um, ashamed life. So what do you see as the warning signs? Uh, is it withdrawal? 
Is it um, sure. sort of different kind of behavior? Are they uh, maybe not paying attention to their appearance? Uh, what are you seeing? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there are several different things of my own story I know. And then, um, you know, I, I isolated away. I, um, I stopped taking care of myself for sure. My physical health uh, was in a downward spiral. I sort of became quick to um, get agitated or uncomfortable. My anxiety levels were through the roof. So I, I really did kind of hide away and was a recluse, and especially in the midst of my active addiction. And, and so, you know, severed some of those close friends relationships and didn't talk to even my best friend for six months during the darkest depths of, of depression. And so I think there are warning signs that you can see, but at the same time, you know, so many people are good at hiding it. And um, especially in colleagues I work with in medicine, you put on the fake smile and grind through and do your work and just show up. And then, you know, I've had a couple of different colleagues that have done that. And this is well known in the evidence in the medical world and then died by suicide right after their shift. Yeah, unbelievable. And, you know, nobody even suspected or knew. Yeah, yeah. usually it's um, a family member. If if it's hidden well, usually the one that detects it is either a spouse or a child or a parent, right? Usually it's usually they they pick it up somehow. And I think so. And at the same time, I, my philosophy about building a, a culture and normalizing this conversation so that people will feel safe to come forward is not about identification as much as it is attraction to, um, to seeing somebody who's living in recovery and putting that out there so that other people will feel like that's a safe, open space that I can go and seek help and treatment and a real open door policy, you know, in my office with colleagues and so that, you know, I don't have to be the one to go out and peruse and scour the halls and say, does that person look like they're struggling? But by living very openly and boldly in my truth, then hopefully people will know that there, and I'm not just speaking for myself, I have several other, you know, colleagues who are willing to do this, then we can be individuals that they know are safe spaces and havens that um, people can come and trust. Uh, and, and I try to promote that sort of cultural um, spaces. Yeah, it's, um, as you said, part of the problem is the shame factor, correct? And That's the right. denial factor. You know, I'm, I'm ashamed. Why am I in this? Why did this happen to me? What did I do? Or um, this shouldn't have happened to me. And so I'm just going to make believe it didn't. Those are, what do you think? Yeah, I think that, you know, um, shame is complex and the stigmatization that is attached to mental health and addiction is very real. And so there's self-stigmatization or the shame and guilt spirals that we put ourselves through. And I lived through that intensely uh, for months and months where of self-deprecation, self-hatred and all the feelings of unworthiness that you described. And But then there's sort of the, you know, the stigmatization of others and the cultural cultural one at, at large about how we view mental health and addiction as moral failings or weakness. You should have been tougher. You should have just decided not to use. You should have been smarter than that. Um, all these things that we ascribe and right. in a social Darwinian way, try to put people in a separate space uh, as a lesser than who suffer from these conditions when the medical data and scientific evidence suggests that these are medical conditions like anything else. 
And then there's, I think, this institutional and policy type stigmatization that occurs all the time that has prevented people from getting help that um, also is something we need to systematically address. Yeah, but it can also be not just around, I mean, to come to this, it may not be a medical issue or a substance abuse. It could be that, you know, it could be a, a different kind of health issue, right? It could also be um, the loss of a loved one, and now you feel hopeless and you get depressed. It could be a financial loss all of a sudden. You know, for years you struggled, and now you had to, you know, really it's taken a turn for the worse. And so, again, the shame, those are all big life events that can affect our security and our feeling of safety. So it doesn't just have to be a substance abuse issue to create this kind of depression, um, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, emotional trauma and grief and loss and all of these uh, things that you're talking about, I mean, they're on a spectrum and and there's still, you know, a huge normal spectrum of what people experience when they go through difficult things. And we've pathologized it and made it so anomalous and abnormal that um, I think even in the midst of the things you're talking about, people struggle to feel like n- they're normal in the midst of what they're going through and um but it very much i mean uh grief in itself is incredibly complicated and so i think you know in this and then in the daily work that i do in palliative care we we try to to normalize that as best as we can and saying that your experience is real and it's valid and it deserves and worthy of a compassionate empathic ear and um and make sure people know and feel validated in that I think that's so important. How can people find your book? Sure. So uh, really the book is available online anywhere books are sold. So, Or you can go to your, any of your local retailers or local bookstore and have them order it. Uh, I do have a website as well at adambhillmd.com. And there's more information of a blog and other publications I've done and information of the book on there. Right. Okay. I'm going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about, um, you know, how people stereotype and how we really need to tell our stories and the yeah. whole idea of taking care of yourself and standing up to the stigma that, you know, you were talking about, Adam, that often happens um, with, uh, you know, this kind of depression and illness. So when we come back, we're going to talk more about that with Dr. Adam Hill. And let me tell you about him again. He is completed his medical school training at Indiana University. And uh, he was trained at Duke University Pediatric Oncology. And he currently serves as the Division Chief of Pediatric Palliative Care at Indiana University's Riley Hospital for Children. And he's gained a lot of national and international attention for his lectures about writing about his own successful mental health recovery. He was awarded the Pediatric Faculty of the Year Award at Indiana University and also the Hilton Ultimus Brown Award for Distinguished Alumni from Butler University. And he's also been recognized for his exceptional patient care and humanistic approach to medicine. So um, we're very excited to have him on the program. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about the stigma that this creates, why stories are so important, and why self-care is so important. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice, and we'll be right back.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Want an insider's pass to everything that goes on in Hollywood? Join Summer Helene every week for Behind the Scenes. Summer Helene is known as the Duchess of Hollywood because she knows the insiders, legends, and celebs and brings the stories, the gossip, and the backstage scoop. It's the real Hollywood, though. So this program is for adults only. Behind the Scenes can be heard live every Friday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you are a pet owner, you know there's a special connection between us and our pets. They are part of the family. The owners of special breeds also understand the important roles they play. Tune in for Greyhounds Make Great Pets to find out more about one special breed. Hosted by Rory and Kathy Goray, along with TJ Beter, we'll focus on greyhounds, but we'll also cover topics that apply to any pet owner, like animal welfare issues, racing, and more. Listen live Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to The Patricia Raskin Show. If you wish to call into our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That number again is 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. Now, back to the Patricia Raskin Show. Hi, everyone, and we are back. We are talking to Dr. Adam Hill about his new book, Long Walk Out of the Woods. And the subtitle is A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery. Uh, Dr. Hill is a Duke University-trained pediatric oncologist, and he currently practices as a pediatric palliative care faculty physician at Indiana University's Riley Hospital for Children. He gained national and international attention for his lectures and writing about his own successful recovery from depression, alcoholism, and the lessons learned along the way. Welcome back, Adam. Thank you so much. Yeah, there's a chapter in your book I'd like you to talk about. You talked about this a little bit before, but I'd like you to talk about this because I think it's so important for all of us. It's chapter 10, learning to take care of myself. And here you are, a physician. We would all think, well, of course he knows how to take care of himself, right? He was trained. So explain all that and give us some pointers of what you think is very important. Yeah, I think the the truth is that common knowledge would be that individuals who are intellectually trained in the pathways and physiology of what makes the body tick, that they would really be experts in, in how to right. take care of yourself. Right. And um, the truth is we're experts in how to take care of other people. 
And, <laughs> you know, a lot of the time in medical training, you go from, you know, college to medical school to residency to fellowship to this process that's an intense uh, training uh, grind for a decade is to put your needs on the back burner and to to learn uh, how to best take care of other people. And, and we don't really do a great job of teaching emotional maturation and self-awareness and insight and coping skills to be able to, to heal and take care of ourselves. And, you know, um, I've seen over the last few years a reintegration of the humanities and medical training and really trying to own this process of finding better ways to take care of ourselves in the cultures of medicine. Um, but for so long and the way that I was trained, it, it wasn't something we actively talked about. And, you know, I reflect that in the book on Christmas night of one of my years in residency training of having to do chest compressions on a six-month-old baby for 35 minutes and then this baby died and having to explain to this family, you know, in the waiting room of the emergency room of how they lost their child and um, not feeling emotionally prepared for the gravity of that and just that immense sadness uh, and then having to run back upstairs and admit three other patients and, you know, transfer a kid to the intensive care unit and not even think about the gravity of the emotional toll of that and then just bury it down deep for years to come. And time and time and time of that happening again, day after day after day and not providing a space um, to process it, I think uh, wears on a lot of people and in, 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 in these types of professions. Yeah, because you're not, you're burying it, right? I mean, it's buried. So it's yeah, going to come out of your body somewhere. That's right. And I think we're actually taught to do that and not cry in front of patients yes. to keep a, yes. keep a professional facade to march on and do the next thing that you have to, you know, go and start the next medication in the next room and there's somebody else that needs to be seen with higher acuity needs than your own. And we're taught and indoctrinated in a system that continues to practice that way and um, and has failed for so long to provide really safe spaces for our own complex emotion during really difficult and tragic events. And, and so um, it's part of the practice that I really preach in medicine of creating spaces for our own humanity and our own healing uh, while we continue to do this meaningful and impactful work. Right. But that is changing in medical school, isn't it? Aren't they starting to teach courses in compassionate care and being able to express your feelings? Hasn't that changed as of recently in the past 10 years, maybe? Yeah, I think that there more and more we're seeing a shift uh, in the culture, which has been this reflex to uh, the epidemic of suicide and distress that we've seen in medicine that it's, although it's been there for decades, we're now finding ways to describe it and bring it to the surface by people sharing their stories more openly to acknowledge that we are in a time of crisis um, in this field, but also in so many others. Uh, You know, this epidemic of suicide isn't unique just to medicine. We see dairy farmers, millennials, active military, veterans. Um, we see that there's so many different facets of our communities that are struggling. And um, at least within our own in medicine, we're really starting to acknowledge it and finding, trying to find ways to address it. Mm-hmm. 
So having said everything you just said, what would you say to someone listening to this who's carrying a lot of stuff, right? Carrying some deep stuff. What would you say? What would be your advice? Whether it's a medical professional or anyone in the healthcare field or anyone who's, you know, working with people or facing these kind of daily crises that, that uh, wear them down. I think one is that it's okay to to feel that way and to acknowledge it's normal to have, you know, uh, to to feel that way when you're in the midst of really emotional, traumatic work all the time. And the second is to also realize that it's normal and healthy to prioritize yourself and find ways to help take care of yourself first uh, so that you can help take care of other people and, you know, um, we we haven't done uh, a great job historically at, at being able to reprioritize that for people. Um, and so I would tell people that, you know, reach out your hand, reach out for help, take care of yourself because you deserve it, you're worth it, and um, so that then you can... And what would you say specifically? Would you talk about exercise, mm. uh, diet, mindfulness? Um, what What would be your specific recommendations? So, you know, not being a, a mental health uh, practitioner myself, I share my experience, which is uh, to say that I reached out for, for therapy. Um, I think that mental health counseling was critically important to me at the same time that I aligned the other coping strategies in my life. So really looking at exercising, taking care of myself, eating well, practicing mindfulness, meditation, finding coping skills that worked. Um, and I just kept trying and failing and trying again and failing uh, until I found strategies that worked with my life and my lifestyle. Um, and then finding a you know a support network that is really uh, will be uh, inclusive of you and loving and unconditional to support you no matter what it is that you're going through. I think are are huge parts of recovery. Yeah, that's so true. The support talking about the support, you know, and how many times we don't realize how an act of kindness or just being there for someone can make such a difference, right? It could be a sentence, it could be a half an hour you spent with that person that lifted them up enough so that they were able to move on and didn't do something that might have hurt themselves. And that, that's right, and it's such a beautiful point. And I write about, uh, you know, it's only a few passages of a story in the last chapter of the book about this patient I took care of that was a teenager with osteosarcoma, which is a cancer of the bone. And early in my career, I'd, I'd brought her a jar of pickles and a handwritten note on one of her last days of her hospital stay, mm. just pretty much saying that, you know, I was thinking of her and, we often reflected about the book Life of Pi, and I had had this, you know, message about I hope your boat makes it ashore as a metaphor and mm-hmm. reference to the to the book, and and I never saw her again. You know, she left the hospital. I went on to a new rotation, and ten years later, you know, I'm searching through my inbox on a routine Monday afternoon, and there I see this email. And she's now, you know, in her mid twenties, a young adult, mm. and send me this email about how those five minutes in that jar of pickles was like Aww. one of the most profound gifts of love and how much she appreciated that and just that simple act of kindness made the time she was going through in cancer treatment so much better. 
But at the same time, like her sending that email to me found me at a moment and point in my life where I needed it. And, yes. and it, that, that return, you know, grace that she gifted to me met, meant everything to me. And, and I don't mm-hmm. think either one of us, you know, knew how impactful just those few minutes were. And, and, and I think those simple moments can be incredibly powerful. Yeah, I'm so glad you told that. I think that's just so amazing. You know, and so many people will poo-poo that, if you will. Oh, yeah, you gave her pickles. Who cares, right? And they don't see the deeper meaning. I I remember I, I, I had something like that. Not that, but something, someone did something for me. It was, and I was just so taken by it. And I told a friend, and she went, oh, that's weird. Like, who would, like, almost like, who would do that? Right? No normal person would, would go out of their way like that. And I didn't say anything. I let it go. But that is where that mentality is. And when your heart isn't open like that, you're not going to be getting gifts in that way. Right? Because you don't even think it can happen. That's Or the you're getting gifts and you don't see it, right? And Exactly. And, and so... You know, I mean, that was the beauty of the story is I honestly didn't even really remember doing that (laughs) 10 years later. And Mm -hmm. it it was a small part of my day, but it made this immense impact. And and then the same thing, I'm sure that she thought, you know, sending this email is one of 100 emails in the day. And it's something I treasure and will treasure the rest of my life. And, um, you know, and so I think there's a incredible beauty in that. There is. All right, tell us again. We're going to have one more segment with you today. Tell us again before we go to break how people can get your book, Long Walk Out of the Woods, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery. Yeah, so really you can uh, go to my website, adambhillmd.com, and there's a lot of other information on there, or you can look for the book anywhere online, books are sold, and pick up a copy there. All right, we're going to take a quick break, folks. We'll be back with Dr. Adam Hill right after the break. Again, uh, really, his biography is in the title, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery, and how he's helping thousands of other people now in his work uh, as a, a palliative care physician. And again, right now, he is a pediatric oncologist. And he also serves as the division chief of pediatric palliative care at Indiana University's Riley Hospital for Children. And he's gained a lot of national recognition for telling his own story of recovery and hope. You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show right here on voiceamerica.com, America's Voice. Stay tuned. We will be right back. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. are listening to the patricia raskin show if you wish to call into our program today please call 1-866-472-5788 that number again is 1-866-472-5788 you may also send an email to patricia at patriciaraskin.com now back to the patricia raskin show hi everyone and we are back my guest for the whole hour is Dr. Adam Hill, MD. His book is Long Walk Out of the Woods, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery. And Adam, Dr. Hill has gained national recognition and international attention for his lectures and writing about his own successful mental health recovery. He serves as the Division Chief of Pediatric Palliative Care at Indiana University's Riley Hospital for Children. He's won several awards. And I want to read you something that I think is important. This is from Christine Mutier, who is an MD, and she's the Chief Medical Officer at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And here's what she says about this book. Exposing the stigmatizing and illogical aspects of the culture of medicine when it comes to caring for our own, this book has the power to transform an already shifting culture, and should be required reading for all professionals in the medical field. That's quite a testimony, Adam. It really is. Yeah, I was incredibly grateful for her reading the book and her support and what has evolved into a a friendship now and professional collaboration. So it was very kind. Well, there's a a chapter in your book, and I want you to talk about it because I think this is the heart. I think this is one of the hearts of the problems and that is the vulnerability to create honest conversations. That's part of the reason all this happens. We don't talk. We keep it in. We smile. We put a facade on. We don't have those honest conversations because we're afraid. People will think we're failures. They won't like us. You know, we've made a mistake. Uh, So talk about that whole piece of the vulnerability and how we can start to create those honest conversations. Yeah, I think it's such a... A powerful message that I've learned in recovery is that I've seen over and over again, we've 
um, devolved into just isolationism and the ways that we share our stories and that we put up the you know, professional, idealized version of our life on social media or online or other sort of things and, and hide a lot of our truth and um, our authenticity behind that, sometimes intentionally and sometimes just unintentionally. But, you know, the power of our organic, our vulnerable, our true stories helps to break down stereotypes and stigmas. It helps to show the the real life stories of that 20% of the general population in the United States has some form of mental health condition and diagnosis. And so this is a, a common condition. And, you know, 10 million Americans have mental health and addiction stories that run concurrently. And so if these are common stories, then I think the more people visible and vulnerable and open and sharing their stories adds to that and adds a voice to, to normalize this conversation. And so, you know, for me, it was, you know, taking a little bit of a leap of faith, um, a little um, bit of putting myself out there, but to yeah, it's a realize risk. it's a risk. It was. And, you know, but I had reached this moment of peace in my life and comfort and well with the support of my family as well to say that this was something I needed to do to be me and to live uh, the life that I wanted to be, to live as a role model for my children and um, and what I wanted them to see of me, that not as somebody who's a failure or had a weakness or, or is morally flawed, but somebody who's stronger because he's lived through things that um, that continue to give me strength and that it's okay to fall down and to suffer setbacks and have failures as James Joyce once said, you know, uh, mistakes are the portals for for discovery. And I view my life as every one of these as an incredible opportunity to learn and grow and mature and evolve. And, and I learn from this. And so I think that I'm incredibly blessed and to have a new perspective as somebody who's been through this and been through depression, anxiety, and addiction. And it only makes me stronger. And and, and I hope in sharing that, that other people will find power in their own stories as well and, and, and realize that there's an immense amount of strength behind that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the challenge becomes when it's part of a core value you were raised with. So, for example, sure. let's say, you know, in your case, you know, you were raised to be educated and bright and, and do things well. And this is like a shame, if you will, upon the family or, um, you know, or like in a business case where you were brought up in a successful business family and you try your best to make your business work and, and it failed. And it's like, oh, you know, it, it's, it's this fear that your whole core value, you know, that you were, um, that you're really a failure. Speak to that, Adam, because that's a hard one. That's a hard it one is. when it starts to hit. You know what you were what you were raised with. Yeah, and you know I I was raised in an, an incredibly supportive family who did and do love me unconditionally. I would say that this clash that you speak of actually occurred for me in my professional culture in the world of medicine. Quite ironically, because you know we're tasked 
uh, on a daily basis to take care of individuals with mental health and condition, uh, mental health and addiction conditions, and yet we have this shame perpetuated upon us all the time as individuals in recovery in the medical community. That any time I apply for a job or a position, it asks me on my licensing questions on my job applications, "Have you ever been in mental health treatment? Have you ever been in addiction treatment? Have you ever been on an antidepressant?" And it asks you to to name all of those things. As if it's some grand anomaly that you should be ashamed for. And I was even asked, and I write about this in the story at one point in my career, to write a public letter apologizing for the fact that I was in proactive, voluntarily disclosed addiction recovery to be published for the public uh, to see as this archaic form of public shaming and stigmatization that we've done to our own in medicine. And and so that was the clash for me is that um, I was feeling good about recovery years in and then was very, very publicly shamed. And, um, and I don't pretend that that's unique to medicine. This happens in so many different careers. Um, and, and so, but that was this moment of collision that, you know, I was to be ashamed of this, and instead I chose to lean in and to yeah. embrace my own vulnerability yeah. and say, if this is how individuals are treated and they're dying because of it, then what can I do to help break down these barriers and obstacles in the way so this doesn't continue to happen to other people? Because that's the oath I took in medicine, to do no harm and to help treat other people. Mm. What a beautiful way to close. How wonderful. Thank you so much, Adam, for being on the program. It was really inspirational. And, you know, being able to take your lessons and help thousands of other people is so important. Do you have closing thoughts? What would you like? What's your final message to our listeners? Well, one, I mean, I appreciate you and and the work that that you do on a daily basis to bring hope to people. Um, And that, you know, my story in sharing this really is a a greater hope that, you know, no matter what you're going through, no matter what struggles or ups and downs your life has, that there's hope for a better day and uh, for a better future if you simply reach out your hand and and ask for help. Um, And that, you know, I hope people that, can find the compassionate and empathic ears to um, to be able to tell their story and to feel heard. And so, um, you. you know, I appreciate this opportunity and I really appreciate you. Oh, thank you. Well, it means this is wonderful. Now, people can get the book you said online, Amazon.com. And what's your website? It's AdamBHillMD.com. Okay. And like you mentioned, you can find it anywhere Anywhere, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million, anywhere books are sold. Okay. And the book is The Long Walk Out of the Woods, A Physician's Story of Addiction, Depression, Hope, and Recovery. And uh, stay on the line for a minute, Adam. Thank you so much. It was wonderful. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. Uh, You can like me on Facebook, Patricia Raskin, Raskin Resources. If you'd like to know who the upcoming guests are, I can put you on my newsletter list. Just write to me, Patricia at patriciaraskin.com. Remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin. Bye for now. Thank 
Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of The Patricia Raskin Show. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week.